you have your uh, Bibles with you, turn with me to, to John chapter 4, just uh, continuing our series. Uh, this time we'll, our focus verses will be from verse 16 to 24, um, but uh, we'll recap perhaps from a little before that. Uh, and the subject really of the, the message is uh, worship God in spirit and truth. Certainly that's a, a focus of Jesus' conversation here with the, the woman of Samaria uh, and seems appropriate to focus on uh, in the exposition of the text, therefore. Um, so, uh, as a brief recap from the, the previous message, um, really all in all was a, a fairly simple, uh, simple message. Uh, and I asked two questions in the message, uh, being... What is the living water that Jesus speaks of? Um, because that was arguably the focus of the previous uh, verses. Uh, and I answered that with, living water is eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son to those chosen by the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. So this, this giving of living water very much a, a Trinitarian thing. And subsequently, in application of that, uh, have you drank of this living water? Uh, and does your, your heart and hence your outward life convey the characteristics of one who has had that holy heart surgery, having the heart of stone plucked out and the heart of flesh put in? And so may we not only initially drink of this salvific living water, um, but daily give thanks, love and devotion uh, to the giver of this living water that wells it up in us to eternal life. But in uh, introducing the, uh, the text for today, uh, I re remembered a, a quote from a, a rapper, in fact, that some of you guys will know, uh, being Shai Lin. Uh, and in his, I actually think it's part of a message, I'm not sure, but in, in his song, message, whatever it is, uh, called Doxology Intro, um, he has... These words, which I think well introduce, uh, at least in part, um, the notion from today's verses. He says, Theology is the study of God, and it's very important. Doxology is an expression of praise to God. So the point here is that all theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. So if you have theology without doxology, you just have cold, dead orthodoxy, which he comments, which is horrible, right? On the other side, we have people who say, ah, forget theology, I just want to praise, right? But if we have doxology without theology, we actually have idolatry because it's just a random expression of praise, but it's not actually informed by the truth of who God is. So God, he says, is concerned with both. He's concerned with an accurate understanding of him and that accurate understanding of him leading to a response of praise, adoration and worship towards him. Arguably, worshipping God in spirit and truth. So let me read the, the text from today. I'm going to pick up from John 4 verse 7 uh, and I'll read to verse 24 or so. John 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And our focus verses. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband and you have had five, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Maybe just to verse 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, as you reveal uh, in this conversation, which literally happened at a well in Samaria, uh, Lord, you reveal that you are the God-man, you are the Messiah. You are the Saviour, Lord, of all the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, and I pray that with such descriptors and more, uh, we would appropriately reverence you as we uh, come to your word this morning. Lord, give us greater insight um, regardless of whether this text is old hat to us or otherwise, give us greater insight into who you are. Minister to us by your spirit. Uh, may we know, therefore, in spirit and truth, um, the living God and worship you in the same vein. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So within the text, uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman uh, finish the part of their discussion about living water and they move on to discuss true worshippers. And in the following section, as I sort of finished off the text by reading, uh, Jesus explicitly reveals himself uh, as the Messiah, as the one who was to come. As far as the, uh, the sections from verses 16 to 24, uh, I have it split up as verses 16 to 19, uh, Jesus shows his prophetic insight. And so we'll talk a little bit about Christology in discussing that. 
And then in verses 20 to 24, uh, the nature of true worship, worship in spirit and truth is discussed. So just to uh, recap the verses as I like to do, verses 16 to 19. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And it's by no means the main point, uh, but the fact that Jesus uh, says, and the one you now have is not your husband, uh, is pretty good evidence that uh, monogamous, faithful, living together without marriage uh, is not a good deal. So you have Jesus' words on it. Recently, I watched uh, Kung Fu Panda number two um, with, with my son. Uh, and within the movie, for those of you who've seen it, you'll be uh, familiar with it. Um, within the movie, there is this, this goat, which uh, some sort of uh, ruler goes to, basically in order to, to tell him or her uh, the future. And, and this goat will look into this bowl of water, which I think may or may not have tea leaves or something, and you know, stirs it up and then uh, proclaims to, to tell the future or give wisdom on, on whatever it is the king or queen has asked of said goat. Um, I thought, in fact, I, I paused the movie um, when we were, or after we had finished watching the movie, I, I stopped and I, I said to Silas, you know, the Bible says uh, that this kind of thing uh, is an abomination. So watching just a very simple children's movie actually presented an opportunity to talk with my child about the things of the Lord. Uh, and I read through Deuteronomy 18, specifically verses 10 to 12, where it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So that was a an enjoyable opportunity, I suppose, to watch a movie which was enjoyable and subsequently to discuss the things of the Lord uh, with my son. But it pertains to our text uh, because I think within our culture there is this kind of uh, lowering of the bar of what might very loosely, and I'm saying very loosely, please hear me on that, uh, very loosely be called prophetic. Uh, and so we have uh, things like this and just ordinary children's entertainment, which you know, pertain to have some sort of prophetic value, even in entertainment. Uh, and more prolific, uh, we have things like uh, horoscopes, uh, which of course, again, pertain to or proclaim that they know the future um, through absurd means. Uh, and they will tell you the future. You will be better off, apparently, for having uh, read or, or bought of this knowledge. And so then, because that is kind of, uh, again, to borrow Tom's term, that the water that we swim in, we come to a text like this, uh, and we see that, that Jesus reveals prophetic knowledge, actual prophetic knowledge, uh, to a person, and it kind of lowers the bar of how we see what is going on. Uh, and uh, at risk of, of wearing you out through repetition, uh, keep in mind once again that this woman is discussing things with a man. He doesn't have a glow surrounding him that would make you obviously go, ah, it's the God-man. He just looks like a man. And subsequently, 
uh, he reveals to this lady uh, who he couldn't have known otherwise but by having knowledge from the Lord, from God his Father. He reveals to her uh, knowledge about stuff that he could not have ordinarily known. It is not just uh, some party trick. It is not some uh, freebie in a, a magazine whereby you can read your horoscope of the day. Uh, this is real uh, knowledge that nobody could have known but by being a member of the Godhead or minimally uh, by having knowledge from the Godhead. So I want to say that potentially, uh, again, because of those waters that we swim in, we have an underdeveloped uh, Christology as we approach passages like this. Uh, whereas if we sort of uh, take a step back and, and pause for a second, consider how this actually would have looked uh, for the people whose shoes uh, the passages uh, who are in the passage, uh, we see uh, that there is a lot more significance. We would expect, if we really think about who Jesus is, we would expect such knowledge from the God of all. That would make sense, that he would know these things. His knowledge is not held captive by what can be naturally known. And the fact Jesus displays this knowledge shows, reveals who he really is. He is not some magician. He is not some occultist. He is the God of all. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. Uh, and hence is, is worthy uh, of this worship, which he will go on to describe. That being the shorter of the two sections, let's uh, recap verses 20 to 24. It says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So once again, uh, like we did last time, consider the, the course of this conversation just thus far. Jesus says to the woman uh, to, to go and, and get her husband. The woman notes that she has no husband. Jesus then, in reply, uh, reveals prophetic knowledge of the woman with regards to her current living arrangements and her former marriages. And the woman's response is to, rightly, so far as it goes, note that Jesus is a prophet, but then bring up a controversy regarding the place of worship. Uh, and we might rightly ask ourselves, how did we get here? That doesn't really seem to be the trajectory of the conversation. Uh, we've gone off uh, on a right turn. Uh, but we'll give the answer to that question in a second. Um, before getting there, I want to give just a, a little bit more background uh, to this worship controversy, uh, which is apparent uh, in the text. Uh, ultimately being that Jews held, rightly, uh, that God ought to be worshipped in Jerusalem, and Samaritans held that God ought to be worshipped uh, in Mount Gerizim. Uh, so the Jews recognised or recognised uh, the whole of the Old Testament canon, which they might call uh, the Tanakh, being the, the Torah. And now I'm going to forget the actual words. I think the Torah, the Nevo'im, and the Chetuvim. 
Is that right? Close enough? Excellent. Um, so TNK, and hence you get Tanakh, uh, and I think that translates to the law, the writings, and the prophets. Uh, what we would call simply the Old Testament. But if you're talking with a Jew, use Tanakh, they'll know what it means. The Jews recognized the entirety of that uh, and hence took passages such as 2 Chronicles 6, 5-6, whereby Solomon in blessing the people following the completion of the temple notes, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. So because the Jews recognize the entirety of the Old Testament canon, uh, they can therefore, rightly, as they ought to, uh, pick up passages like that and say, this is where we ought to worship. This is where Yahweh has chosen us to worship. Uh, Samaritans, I found, uh, interestingly, only recognize a a part of the Pentateuch, uh, and albeit that with some textual variations. And so they recognize the need for a place, for a central place of worship, uh, as Deuteronomy notes in chapter 12. Uh, and they note that Abraham's first altar was built at Shechem, which is uh, Sychar, as we talked about in, in the last message, or Nablus of the modern day. And this place overlooked Mount Gerizim, whereby Israel shouted the blessings, you remember the blessings and the cursings, uh, whereby they shouted the blessings as prescribed in Deuteronomy 11, uh, prior to entering the promised land. And for this reason, recognizing uh, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, they choose Mount Gerizim as the place of worship. So this gives some more of the background to the controversy, um, but we'll note that Jesus uh, essentially blows the lid off the whole thing uh, and says that essentially true worship is not based upon uh, where you worship so much as how you worship. You are to worship God in spirit and truth. So coming back to uh, this sort of deviation in the conversation, why does the Samaritan woman note Jesus' prophethood and then bring up this controversy of worship? I think we have to be uh, honest in saying that the text doesn't directly address uh, why she might have done that. Uh, but some Bible commentators uh, posit that the woman, convicted though not fully of her sin, shifts the focus to this controversy. And given Jesus' prophethood, his, his wisdom, she hopes that she might obtain an answer to this, this controversy which has gone on for numerous years. And that's laudable so far as it goes. If we uh, have some sort of a, a theological question and we find someone who is, is superior in such knowledge, it is right to ask them about it. But you can see potentially that uh, she has an opportunity there to repent of her sin, to, to trust in the Messiah who is right in front of her, and yet she shifts the topic of conversation uh, to avoid really having to confront her own sin. Uh, Jamison Fawcett and Brown, who I, I researched in, in looking into this, they state, she ingeniously shifts the subject from a personal to a public question. It is not, alas, what a wicked life am I leading, but, lo, what a wonderful prophet I got into conversation with. He will be able to settle that interminable dispute between us and the Jews. 
Sir, you must know all about such matters. Our fathers hold to this mountain here, pointing to Gerizim in Samaria, as the divinely consecrated place of worship. But ye Jews say that Jerusalem is the proper place. Which of us is right? And these commentators finish and say, how slowly does the human heart submit to thorough humiliation? The right response, potentially afterwards she could have asked about this controversy, but the right response would have been to have rightly felt that humiliation, that godly sorrow, to have repented of her sin, to trust in the Messiah. And I would say after that, have at it with your theological questions, but get right with God first. And as I say, the, the text doesn't explicitly say that this was her intention, uh, but whether or not this was the woman's intent, uh, I think it makes a good application for us. May we uh, be the kind of people that relish God's justifying and sanctifying hand. May we make no peace with small sins, or large sins for that matter. It seems a good application, this notion of Proverbs 9, verses 8 and 9, uh, some verses which are, I think are wonderful. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man on the, on the other side and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Imagine the difference, for example, uh, in David's life and heart for God, if he had welled up with pride and stood firm in his sin with Bathsheba when he was confronted uh, by Nathan the prophet. If nothing else, we wouldn't have had a wonderful uh, guide for repentance as seen in the 51st Psalm, but imagine the difference in the course of history that that would have made in God's people. But rather, when confronted with his sin, he repents of his sin and he seeks to follow the Lord. And may that be said of us also. And so to make point or application, uh, supposing avoidance of confronting her sin to be the woman's motive in asking her question, let us be far more like David and far less like the Samaritan woman in this particular context. But arguably the, the focus of, of the text, or at least these latter verses, uh, true worshippers will worship the Father, the text says, in spirit and in truth. Sorry, in spirit and truth. Uh, the, it's good for this to look at certain Bible translations and how they uh, translate the verses. The ESV, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the American Standard Version uh, unanimously have in spirit and truth. The New Living Translation, if you uh, care for it, and the King James have in spirit and in truth. Uh, and the NIV, which if I hadn't have looked into this verse prior to uh, coming to the text, I probably would have quoted this one to you. Uh, the NIV has in the spirit and in truth. Uh, turn, because we'll go there in a second, to 1 Corinthians 14. One um, textual scholar, uh, being Bill Mounts, he, he says of how this ought to be translated, he says this. One of the exegetical debates of this verse surrounds the identity of the series of two words, spirit and truth. There is only one preposition, in or in Greek, en. This is Greek's way of telling the reader that the two objects of the preposition, spirit and truth, are to be viewed as a unit, 
not two separate entities. To worship in spirit and truth is one concept. It is to worship in accordance with the truthful teachings of Jesus, who defines God as spirit and defines acceptable worship as that done in the sphere of spirit, sorry, in the sphere of spirit, lowercase, and the spirit, uppercase. Uh, and so put differently uh, in Tobias' words, uh, to worship in spirit and truth is one worship where both, where both things must be present. We don't, as it were, uh, worship God in, in spirit on a Monday and then on Tuesday worship him in truth and then Wednesday sort of mix them together and worship God in spirit and truth. Rather, to worship God rightly is to worship God in spirit and truth. The two things go together uh, in order to worship God rightly. Uh, so what does it mean to worship the Father in spirit and truth is the question we ought to ask ourselves. Uh, a section that will aid us uh, is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 to 17. And it says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So Paul will both pray and sing praise, both aspects of worship, uh, in spirit and mind, in spirit and truth, arguably. What is spirit and what is truth? Uh, to look at these separately uh, doesn't contradict what we have just said about uh, using them together to rightly worship God. Spirit, I would define, and I think is in line with the scripture, as the spiritual part of a person. We are both body and spirit, and it's connected uh, with emotion and devotion. I think as Reformed folks or folks perhaps uh, persuaded in that way, we tend to hear the word emotion and immediately alarm bells come up. Um, but stick with me and see if you agree. Uh, so seeing how the word is used in other sections of Scripture, for instance, in John 11, verse 33, following the death of Lazarus, when Mary sees Jesus, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He has this uh, deep emotional response in his spirit uh, and is greatly troubled. And John, after detailing Jesus washing his disciples' feet and discussing how they ought to follow the same servant-like example, uh, says in, in chapter 13, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Not all of the disciples were amongst his chosen, and hence he has uh, once again, this deep uh, emotional response. If one prays, praises, worships solely with the Spirit, not guided by mind and truth, he runs the risk uh, of unguided, 
mindless enthusiasm on perhaps the, the less detrimental side and heresy on the more detrimental side. So we must have both spirit, that deep emotional response and truth and have that spirit guided by truth. It's likely enough that the Corinthians felt good as they pursued the spiritual gifts, as they did. Their spirits probably felt good inside them, but they did not do so according to truth. They were not worshipping God in spirit and truth. So that's spirit and truth, and then we'll put them together. What is truth? The broad answer, as I, I hope that my son would be able to recount to you, would be that truth is that which accords with reality. Reality is dictated by God, and God is the source of all truth. That being the broad answer. The specific answer, uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays for his people that God would, in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. He says, your word is truth. Sanctify your people in the truth. Your logos, your word is truth. Uh, and you might hearken your minds back to Tom's Christmas Day message, uh, whereby he described logos as the ultimate source of all the order of the universe. This is truth. This is Jesus. And earlier in John 17, Jesus says he has given his disciples the Father's word, revealing that the Trinitarian nature of this ultimate word, truth, system of order. And so to put those things together, how do we worship God in spirit and truth? Let me give you this definition. To worship in spirit and truth is to commune with God, spirit, capital S, to spirit, lowercase, bringing praise and service to him with hearts full of joy, love, awe, adoration, etc. And all this in accordance with what he, the ultimate source of truth, has revealed to be true and most specifically how he has directed us to bring such praise and service. Let me read it a little quicker, just one more time. To worship in spirit and truth is to commune with God, spirit to spirit, bringing praise and service to him with hearts full of joy, love, awe, adoration, etc. And all this in accordance with what he has revealed to be true, and most specifically how he has directed us to bring such praise and service. It is not everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, as Deuteronomy talks about, or some bizarre notion that because it happened in church or amongst the people of God and felt good, it must therefore be true worship, which is certainly something that I would have uh, unconsciously held to in the past. Worshipping in spirit and truth uh, should encompass the emotions, but is to be governed by truth. God himself, who is spirit, being the source of all that truth. Uh, turn now to, to Revelation verse 4. Uh, and I, I would have to offer a, uh, before we come to this, a word of thanks to, to you who pray for me in my preparation. Um, because uh, considering all of these things and subsequently considering Revelation 4 was a, uh, a deep and moving thing, hopefully a worshipping in spirit and in truth uh, for myself. So uh, I appreciate those of you who pray. So in Revelation 4, uh, verse 1 says that the, uh, the worship scene is one that is in heaven. 
and surely a heavenly scene ought to perfectly depict what worship in spirit and truth is. So picking up at verse 8, it says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. So these, these creatures constantly worshipping God in heaven commune with God, spirit to spirit. They're in heaven after all. And their praise and service to God is no doubt full of emotions, such as unsurpassed awe, to mention nothing else. And these living creatures sustain their thrice holy chorus day and night without ceasing and subsequently the 24 elders in response ceaselessly ascribe to God that which only he is worthy of. They worship him for what he has done. Their spirit-filled, emotional worship of God is exactly in line with truth that emanates from the one which they worship. The living creatures and the elders, uh, all the heavenly beings, I'm sure, worship God in spirit and truth. As a side point to this, uh, it struck me their continuous, their, their ever-present, their ongoing, forever, eternal worship of God and the fact that they never get tired of doing it. You might, just, just for example's sake, if someone was to, tomorrow, give you, with, with absolutely no catches, the, the palace of palaces, the, the, the biggest, the most luxurious, the most fantastic house that you could possibly imagine. They were to give it to you, it's yours, you've got the keys, no catch at all. I'm sure you would uh, walk around in that house with great excitement in your heart uh, about this wonderful house and you'd enter every room and be in awe of how it looked and, and how it smelled, I don't know, all the rest. You would be excited about having been given this magnificent house and yet after a while, be it a month, a year, a couple of years, however long it was, that house, though you would probably appreciate it still, would become largely a matter of practicality for you. You would get over it, as it were, or at least get over the initial excitement of it. And not that I am uh, in any way equating the value of God with a, an amazing house, but you can see in absolute distinction to that, these, these heavenly beings constantly worship God. They never, ever get tired of how amazing this God is. They know him in truth and their spirits respond day by day by day by day by day all the time with these choruses which are described. And so this, with a, a very high bar, is the worship that we are to, to try and achieve. Will we achieve at this side of glory? I think not. But nonetheless, it is what we are called to pursue.
And just one more uh, verse in illustration. Uh, don't turn there because I'll read it quickly. But in Romans 12 verses 1 to 2, it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Consider the reward of said sacrifice. Uh, and as we rightly do so, uh, the sacrifice will not seem quite so great. But these verses uh, essentially bid us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus says to us, come die. What a fantastic call. Come and die. Come and follow me. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, this, this torturous murder weapon, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Put to death every second of every day that which is contrary to Christ. Come die with that. Come follow Christ. You will worship him in spirit and truth, and you will, I guarantee it, be greatly satisfied. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, not long following those verses in Matthew, that his disciples were about to watch Jesus take his cross to Calvary and actually die. Surely those words would have had a great meaning experientially and theologically for these, these folks. This living sacrifice in Romans, constituting spiritual worship, must be holy and acceptable to God. And consider that in terms of Christ has made us holy and acceptable, and yet we are to go on in sanctification to be holy and acceptable to God. Putting to death again that flesh day by day by day, Christ says, be holy. Holiness is acceptable to God because holiness is in accordance with who God is, with his own character. And in concert with all of this, we do not become conformed to the world, but are renewed in our minds by God, so as to discern and act upon what God's will is. And so spiritual worship is sacrifice, but what a worthy sacrifice for a worthy God it is. Who in their right mind would choose 80 years of pleasure in this life and eternity in hell instead of the gift of eternal life? And sometimes eternal life can sound like a bit too airy-fairy a concept, so let's put it in even more concrete. Who would choose 80 years of pleasure in this life yet not pursuing God if we were to get 81 years, this is the, the example, in perfect communion with him, if we had sacrifice in the first 80 years. Let us be like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So one who discerns God's good, acceptable and perfect will and pursues it, will worship spiritually in spirit and truth. So to make a couple of applications uh, as we move toward a close. 
A deeper Christology will necessarily deepen our worship and understanding of God. Moving uh, from a, a conscious or subconscious understanding of Jesus being a divine magician, like we talked about in the first part of the message, to Jesus being the omniscient God of all, among other things, uh, will surely ensure this. And consider how a deeper understanding of Christ in these ways will, uh, not limited to these things, but for example, affect the way uh, that we evangelize. Jesus is not some fancy fortune teller. He's not just a prophet. He's not someone who uh, can magically uh, multiply loaves and fishes to feed a crowd, but the God, rather, who created all, has power and authority over all, uh, even that which is in the natural realm. And hence, of course, he can bless and multiply loaves and fishes. He's not a fancy fortune teller, but the omniscient God of all. He knows all because he has all knowledge. He is this divine logos. And consider how it will affect how we speak of Jesus within the church. He's not a man who did some party tricks just to prove he was noteworthy. But the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent King of kings and Lord of lords, who created all things, and upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over all things. A deeper Christology will necessarily deepen our worship. And regarding worship in spirit and truth, how might we uh, apply this to ourselves? Well, Reformed folk, as I noted earlier, have a bit of a reputation uh, for knowing their theology, but being a little dry and lifeless. And can I say in, in no uncertain terms, this is bold and underlined in my uh, notes here, there is no necessary connection between these things. Reformed folk may have a reputation for knowing their theology and being a little dry and lifeless, but there is no necessary connection between these things. If we have a connection between those things, we are connected wrong. There is no necessary connection between good, deep theology and a dry and lifeless religion. In fact, the opposite ought to be true. Consider once again those beings in Revelation 4. They had uh, perfect, immediate knowledge of who God is and how to worship him and how rich was their worship. As Shai Lin said, we ought not to have theology without doxology. Rather, all theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, then we've actually missed the point of theology. And so to apply, let us pursue God through a deep study of his word and, inasmuch as it is governed by his word, unafraid of accompanying emotion and communing with God spirit to spirit. So to conclude in just a couple of points, and if you're catching on to me well, my conclusions are famously short. As Jesus will go on to reveal, the woman of Samaria had come face to face with the long-awaited Messiah. And Lord willing, we'll go over that in greater depth next week. This is not just an exalted man, but the God of all. And once he revealed himself to be a prophet, uh, though he was, of course, more than this also, she, for whatever reason, moved to a question of the whereabouts of worship 
uh, and what an answer she got. If we really dig into these words, as I hope we've done today and more could be said, uh, we will realize the, the profoundness of the answer she gets. So may the Lord grant us to know him deeply through his word and the communing of his spirit. And hence, may we worship him deeply even now, uh, and especially as we come to the Lord's table uh, in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray your blessing upon uh, all things that we've considered which are of you. May what is good certainly remain and bear much fruit. I pray that, again, as individuals and as a congregation, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, putting to death that which is of the flesh day by day, taking up our cross and following you. And Lord, thank you that in doing so, we will find great satisfaction. Lord, we will worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, I consider once more those heavenly beings in Revelation 4, and I pray that we would aspire uh, to such a level of unabashed, unashamed, and constant worship. Lord, though it is such a high bar, may it be what we pursue. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.